Last week we opened up this series called The Good Life out of the book, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We learned last week that King Solomon, the son of David, king over all of Jerusalem, the one who was given wisdom by God. He's the second wisest man, second only to Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, writes a book called Ecclesiastes, and it's a book of regrets and remorse. This man had lived life, and he had lived it to the fullest. And he had consumed all that this world had to offer. And yet he found himself wanting and hoping and wishing for more. And so he writes this cautionary tale of this experiment, if you will, that he takes looking at life and seeking to find the answer to the meaning of life, the answer to where we find satisfaction and meaning in this world. To do so, he writes these things, and we find ourselves in the text of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12 this morning. And we're going to go through the rest of chapter 1, and yes, all of chapter 2, and I use the first and second services to tell you you'll still get out on time, even with that great passage of Scripture before us. But what we want to learn today is that we have a problem. And it's a problem that we need to recognize and own if we want to find happiness in this world. To do so, let me tell you a story about Mr. H. Mr. H was a man of his time. Mr. H was good-looking. He was a guy that everybody wanted to be. He was seen around town with the most desirable, most beautiful, and most successful of women. Mr. H not only was good-looking and had wonderful women and beautiful women around him, but he was a man known for his work. Mr. H was known to take on audacious plans and goals, and he would fulfill them. He was known to be an aviator, a pilot, a designer, and his designs and his aviation prowess was known by all. He was a businessman. In his day and age, he was known to be the richest man in all of the world. The world in one accord looked to Mr. H, and as Time Magazine would say, he is the man of the age. Mr. H had everything going for him. He was known to be rich and powerful. He had the world on a platter. He was the envy of the world. But wouldn't you believe it, the last decade of Mr. H's life would be defined as mad and miserable? The life of Howard Hughes from a little over a generation ago is a cautionary tale about having the world and being miserable. Howard Hughes had it all. Howard Hughes had all the money to do whatever he needed. If he needed to buy you off, he would. There was not a single thing Howard Hughes did not have in his life. And what will shock you is the last decade of his life was a sad, miserable existence. He would put himself into a hotel room in Las Vegas, only allowing a few people to even enter into the room. But you didn't want to. This man didn't take care of himself. There was no personal hygiene for the last years of his life. His nails, they said, were nearly a foot long. 
His stench was so bad that they had to close off the entire floor of the hotel because no one wanted to be near that smell. He didn't take care of himself. He lived in abject poverty. And when the memoirs were written about him, after everything was said and everything was done and everything was experienced and everything had been had, Howard Hughes would say of his life, it was a miserable existence. Howard Hughes is a present picture of Solomon. Solomon 3,000 years ago had it all. A thousand women at his beck and call. Palaces and slaves and singers and possessions and, and everything you could ever imagine. He had it all. And at the end of his life, like Howard Hughes writes, I am miserable. That brings us to this question that should rock us to our very core. How can you have everything in this world and still be miserable? How can you have it all and at the end of it all have nothing? Solomon says, this is what I want to look into. How could it be that I had riches and I had success and I had accomplishments and I had pleasure beyond measure? How could I have all of this and still not be satisfied? Well, just as the astronauts on Apollo 13, after feeling a violent bang and a loud racket, radioed down to Houston these words, Houston, we have a problem. Solomon's words in our text today are radioing us through the gift of the Holy Spirit to say, humans, we have a problem. And we have to recognize this problem because if we don't, we will go the way of Howard Hughes, we will go the way of Solomon, and that is to build our lives with the stuff of this world only to have more sadness and regret when it is all done. So this morning, I want to look at three things this morning. And I want to look under this heading that we've got a problem. And our problem is, number one, that each of us long for fulfillment in life. We each long for fulfillment in life. Solomon begins by saying this in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Wait a minute, isn't that what he said in verse 1? Why is he reintroducing himself? Because he knew at Village Bible Church that half of us wouldn't be there week 1. And so he's introducing us to say, I am King Solomon in Jerusalem. For those that weren't there for week 1 of the Good Life Sermon Series, here is who I am. Here is who is preaching to you. I would encourage you, if you haven't, go back to last week's message. There's a ton of introductory things that will help us. And what we would learn if we were to go back to last week is that the premise, the theme, uh, the thesis of Solomon writing this book is singular in its focus. Life is meaningless apart from God. That life apart from God will gain you nothing in this world. And so what he's going to do is each week hammer away at this premise, at this thesis, at this point. He wants us to know that the conclusion he has in looking through the wise eyes that God has given him is that life is meaningless apart from God. 
And so notice what he says. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so he says, I'm on this all-out pursuit in my latter years, my days of, of being older. Now, after pursuing all of it, now I look at the landscape of the world around me, the people around me, and I see that I want to do an experiment. And the experiment has a controlled environment. And that controlled environment is everything that is under heaven or under the sun. And so what he's saying is, is my experiment is going to look at life on earth without God being a part of it. And so everything that is under the sun or under heaven is what he's going to look at. And so he says, what I want to look at is, can you experience all this earth offers? Can you enjoy everything that this world gives us? And can you, in experiencing and enjoying those things, find happiness, contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction in life? Notice what he says. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And this is his conclusion. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Did you hear that? The wisest man on earth says that life is an unhappy venture that God has given us to keep us busy. And so some of you are tired. The reason why is you're busy. You're busy going about life under the sun. So he looks at everything, verse 14, and he sees everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is a vanity, a striving after the wind. He goes on, he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. That is, he's saying, I'm smarter and better and wiser than everyone who's led Jerusalem before me. I want you to think about that. There's been some really heavy hitters that led that way, including his father, David, a man after God's own heart. And he says, I'm smarter than they all were. Boastful, but true. And he says, my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. He says, I've looked at this whole spectrum and I've perceived all of it as a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So here's what this guy does. He goes on a journey to find how to find satisfaction in this life apart from God. And he's not the only one. We all do that. From birth, we enter into this experiment as to find satisfaction in this world. I came across this article in the Harvard Business School called Blissful Thinking. When it comes to finding happiness, your dreams are liars. The article starts out with this, a conversation between a professor, Arthur Brooks, and his mentor, Len Schlesinger. Len Schlesinger asked Arthur Brooks, uh, you want to be a teacher at Harvard. What can you teach that only you can teach? And what is it that your students need that they don't have? Of which that Arthur Brooks said, I've got good news and bad news. Upon looking at our graduates... They have everything they want. That's the good news. A good education, good job, good income. They have it all. Then he said, but there's bad news. What they wanted is the wrong thing. 
So as a result, they're not happy. Wait, Harvard graduates aren't finding happiness? So he said to his mentor, what we need at Harvard is a class on happiness. What we need, church, today is a class on happiness. And Ecclesiastes serves as that class for us. What does it take in this world to be happy? And so what then the author does, Solomon, is he gives a punch list, a laundry list of all the things in this world that surely would bring us happiness. Notice chapter 2. He begins, write these down. It'll be helpful for you to think through and evaluate in your own heart. The first one is pleasure. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Go down to verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. Gave it everything he got. He looked at this world and said, it's about me. Enjoy yourself. Friends, this is the motto we live under. Enjoy yourself. This is the overarching theme of us in 2022 here in America. Enjoy yourself. Now notice at the very heart of that motto that Solomon gives is selfishness to the core. 57 different times in our text you will see the word I or me or my. It's all about Solomon. Look what I have. Look what I've built. Look at what I've experienced. And I will tell you that this is the overarching theme of every marketing strategy that comes into contact with you. You will today turn on TV. You will today turn on your technology. And advertisements will come at you with this overarching thing. You need what we're selling to be happy. And they tell you, if you buy this shirt, Tim, you will look like Brad Pitt. If you eat this burger, Tim, you will never be hungry again. If you drive this car, Tim, people will think you've arrived. If you get that home in that subdivision, people will see you as successful. If you get that promotion in that job, things will be better. And that motto is going and it's screaming out to us. And sadly, far too many of us have bought hook, line, and sinker into this theme of enjoying yourself. And the problem is, is the world can say, yeah, that's my motto and that's okay because they give no regard to Christ. But you have taken on the name. You have put yourself under the banner that you are a Christian. You are a Christ follower. That Christ is preeminent. He is first place in your life. All the while living a lie. Allowing yourself to be king and creator and God. How do you know if you're enjoying yourself over enjoying Christ? Let me ask you in three easy tests. Look at your conversation. Is it about you? Or is it about Christ? 
Is it about what you're doing, about what you have, about what you desire, about where you're going, about your dreams? Or is it about Christ and His glory and His acclaim and His uh, uh, greatness within the world? What are you talking about? Look at your calendar. Is it about your hobbies, your desires, your day off, your dreams, your pursuits, your wants? Or is it about God? Is it about Christ? Is your calendar filled with things that bring you and others closer to Christ and and His goodness and His grace? How about your checkbook? If you log your, your spending, go back and ask the question this last month as you look at the... And listen, the banks do a good job of writing all the things we've spent. Was it about you? Was it about enjoying self? Was it about Christ and the advancement of His kingdom? Was it at least at least every decision, even the things, and, and it's good for us at times to spend on ourselves. That's our right. But is it being funneled through this pursuit of knowing Christ and making Him known in the world? Solomon pursued pleasure, and man, he had it. He had a thousand women around him. He had all the pleasure he ever needed. He was king. Nobody could tell him no. He had everything. And some of us are seeking to live life like Solomon. And Solomon's saying, time out. You won't like where it ends up. Pleasure. He moves on and he talks about parties and punchlines. Okay? Verse 3. He says, uh, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? So I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And he says, this too is van. A vanity, a vanity, excuse me. <clears throat> that is, living life for a party is vain. Uh, the best way to use it today is we live life, we endure life to get to the weekend. So some of you white knuckled it from Wednesday on, just I gotta get to the weekend, I gotta get to the weekend. <clears throat> and if you got to the weekend, Everything was going to be great. And you were going to be able to party. And you were going to be able to laugh. And you were going to be able to have enjoyment. You were going to be able to focus in on yourself. Get rid of the work day. And start living for the weekend. And now Sunday's here. And Monday's looming. And it's back to work. And it's back to toiling. And it's back to looking to the next weekend. Thinking that in the party and in the punchline. You're going to find happiness. Only to know you're just on this treadmill going through the things over and over again. To which he says this is vanity. And you can try to make life a punchline. You can seek to make people laugh. But isn't it ironic, and I don't mean to poke fun at them, that the funniest of comedians are some of the most miserable people in all the world. Because life is serious. As I quoted Princess Leia, life is a brutal joke and you're the punchline and so life cannot be satisfied with parties and punchlines of jokes so how about projects and possessions look at verses 4 through 11 he goes on he says i made great works i built houses and planted vineyards for myself i made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. 
more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both male and, and female, and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. So I was great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was a reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of life, he says, no matter what you do, no matter what you build, no matter what you create, it is all meaningless because you're going to hand it over to someone else in the end. So he gets raw. If it wasn't raw enough, notice he says, I turn to wisdom and madness and folly, verse 12. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw there was much gain in wisdom than in folly. He says, listen, just live your life wisely. That's better than being a fool. He says, surely that's the case. The answer is in wisdom. He goes on, he says, there's more gain in light than in darkness. And some of you are thinking this way right now. You're thinking, well, I look at the world around me. They live in darkness. They live in foolishness. So I'll do the opposite. I'll live in light and I'll live in wisdom. But Solomon says, if that is the end of itself, notice he says of the wise person, verse 14, they have eyes in their head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. The wise, the fool... The prepared and unprepared, the rich, the poor, the successful, and the down on their luck. All of these individuals all experience the singular event. You know what that is? Death. They all die. And so he says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. So why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, This is also vanity. It doesn't even do how you live your life. What you build, whether you're wise or not, it, it doesn't matter. For notice verse 16, For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So he finishes with this. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity, a striving after the wind. God bless you. Let's close in prayer. I hate life. Life is miserable. So here we are, and we've got this life. We have pleasure. We have parties. We have punchlines. We have projects. We have possessions. We have all of this. And it gets us nowhere. I beat up last week on the millennials and the old people loved it. Got more amens. Yeah, okay. So let's talk to the old people. In a book called Balsamic Dreams, which is referred to as the short and self-important history of the baby boomer generation, author Joe Quinlan speaks about a time that he started to experience some acute symptoms in his lungs. And so he took all the symptoms that he was experiencing and he presumed after going to WebMD that he was dying of lung cancer. 
And so, scared to death, knowing he needed to do something different, he then went on this mission of experiencing all that he could in the months he had left because WebMD had told him you only have a certain months to live when you have lung cancer. So he started doing that and ordering his life to be able to be a part of everything that he could experience in this life. Of which, as his wife is watching, says, you know what, you're making a much to do about this. Surely maybe it'd be good to get a second opinion. Of which he goes and gets a second opinion... And he finds out that these acute symptoms come as a result of an allergic reaction causing a cough. He's not dying. And this is what he says. But that night, my sleep was deeply troubled. My brush with death, however fleeting, however absurd, had brought me face to face with my own jealously guarded values. Look at I how I reacted to the thought that I might be dying. Did I say to myself, now might be a good time to help eradicate poverty in rural America? No. Did I ask myself, wouldn't this be a good opportunity to spend time in a leper colony serving those that are in need? No. Did I ask myself, why not use the few remaining months to make this planet a better place than the way I found it? Of course not. Instead, I embarked on a mad binge of self-aggrandizement. Rather than capitalizing on my remaining days and weeks to reconcile myself to my enemies, spend more time with my loved ones, and consult wise men regarding the meaning of life, I succumb to the siren song of self-actualization. By the way, not a believer. Okay, This is not a person following after Christ. So he says, yet in my defense... I wasn't the only member of my age group who would have reacted in this way. For in choosing this pointless, self-involved course of action, I was, if nothing else, being true to the ethos of my generation. When faced with the unsettling developments like death, baby boomers always react in the same way. We sign up for self-improvement classes. A baby boomer par excellence, a prototypical product of the me decade, I only knew how to respond to the world insofar as it responded to me. Everything I had learned as a baby boomer had oriented me in a single direction, direction further into myself. Wow. Did you hear that? When facing death, as absurd as it was, all he could do is think, how do I experience and get more out of life? Point number one, we're all longing for fulfillment in this world. And we're trying to find that fulfillment in the filling of things. Blaise Pascal, uh, the uh, philosopher, put it this way when he said uh, this statement. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause some going to war and of others avoiding it. In the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take, uh, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What he's saying is, is we live, we breathe, we eat, we sleep pursuing happiness. Every one of us. And here's the problem, point number two. 
We lack the ability to fix it. We lack the ability to fix the problem. We long to be fulfilled, but we can't get it. So we're unsatisfied. Why? The answer is in verse 15 of chapter 1. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He gives two illustrations. And in these two illustrations, he says why you and I will never find in this world what we're looking for. First, we live in a straight world where all of us are crooked. Now, it wasn't always that way. In the beginning, God created, and He created a world, and He put Adam and Eve in that world, and it was a straight world. Adam and Eve enjoyed life in that perfect place of paradise. But Satan came, and he tempted them, and he said what the world is saying to us today, you can find happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment apart from God. And what it means is get selfish. So Adam and Eve got selfish. They went after their desires apart from God. And sin was brought into the world. Crookedness became the name of the game. And this is what Scripture says about it in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we were to translate Ecclesiastes into Romans 3.23, it would sound like this. All are crooked and can't straighten themselves out enough to be straight like God. And so here you are, trying to make your way. And it ain't working. Because you need a straight edge and you got a crooked stick. And no amount of pushing and prodding, no amount of trying to straighten it out will work. No amount of elections in America, no amount of education in the world, no amount of money will straighten you and I out. We are as crooked as we can be, and we will always be crooked. And that is why your life and my life, apart from God, is an utter mess. So he looks out to the class and he sees Badal, and Badal's going, it don't make any sense. Give me something else. So he goes on and he says, what is lacking or that which is missing cannot be counted. And what he's saying there is, listen, you don't have it in you to find the happiness you're looking for. How many have ever gotten something from Ikea to put together and parts are missing from it? You know the frustration trying to find that bolt that screws something to make that thing that you bought work? Let me change it for you. What what Solomon is talking about is he's saying life is a puzzle. Life is a puzzle. And what God intended was for the puzzle to look like this. This is what life in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall looked like. It was beautiful. There was a picture. It was to be enjoyed. This is gorgeous. And this is what life with God is to look like. This is what God intended life with Him was to look like. But here's the problem. This is what our life is. Your life and my life is a thousand piece puzzle. And in your box you got 632 pieces. You got it? No amount of hard work, no amount of knowledge, no amount of pleasures and experience will bring together the full picture. And some of us are trying to put these pieces of the puzzle together and no picture is coming. And we're sitting there going, life doesn't make sense because you're not the thousand pieces God intended you to be. You're 632. 
So everything's a mess. And so what you try to do is fill those spots with the things of this world. And God said they were never intended to fill those holes like I was. And so listen to me, church. We want fulfillment. And Solomon says we lack the ability to fix it. So here's our life. This is it. A mess. Chaos. Nothing is in place. Here's the good news. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to a broken, unfinished puzzle of a world. And He says, if we will bow the knee to Jesus Christ, if we will trust Him, if we will make Him our priority, if we'll do all that Lily told us about in her baptism testimony, then that life will turn back to that. Amen? Did I hear? Amen? Some of us are looking for this apart from Christ. It will never happen. It will never happen. And so final point, number three, we must look to God for the answer. We've got to look to God for the answer. That's where we find that answer. Notice what the the writer says again in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, meaning in life. That's it. Happiness is that we will eat, we will drink, and we will find enjoyment in life. This I also saw came from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Of which He says, for to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. What He's saying is, is if you will give your life to God, God will give you the wisdom and the knowledge to get to the good life that God wants you to have. He'll give it to you. Now notice... It says, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Here's what Solomon is saying. Death is going to come to all of us. And that's not as much of the issue. It's what comes after death. That's the problem. The book of Hebrews says, every one of us shall die and then comes judgment. Judgment is what he's talking about. And what he's saying is, on the day of judgment, every one of us, great and small, Tim, Solomon, Howard Hughes, is going to stand before God. And we are going to bring our life in the box, and we're going to say, here's the totality of my life, the totality of my experiences. God, this is how I lived my life. And if it does not have Jesus Christ as a part of it, all that God intended... For the good life to be experienced by people will be snatched away from that man who built his life on the things of this world instead of Christ and it will be given to the saints. You see that? And the saints will enjoy it in a place called heaven for all of eternity. So what God is saying is the good life isn't just found here, but the good life is previewed here in eternity to come. So Jesus, and in closing, so you know we're finished here, in closing, Jesus tells this story to his disciples. 
two men built two houses. The first house was built, and it was built on sand. The second house was built on the rock. Jesus says, as life went on, the houses seemed very, very similar. Both had great exteriors, both had wonderful interiors. Good things happened inside the house and outside of the house. Everything was great. So it would seem that the guy who built on the sand, who took shortcuts, won the day. But then the storm comes. Well, what's the storm? The storm isn't cancer. It's not unemployment. It's not a lack of money or a lack of opportunity. The storm that Jesus talks about is judgment day. And the house that was built on the sand collapses. It doesn't stand up to God's judgment. But the house that was built on the rock of Jesus Christ stood strong. So church... What are you building your life on? What are you filling your life with? And from a life perspective here on this side of heaven, it looks like you've done it right. But every man, woman, and child will stand before Jesus Christ. And on that day, will the house of your life stand the scrutiny of the all-wise judge, Jesus Christ? Or will you be gravely saddened that you built your life on the sands of the things of this world only to watch them collapse and cause you to spend an eternity in hell. We've got a problem. We can't fix it on our own, but the good news is Jesus came so we could build our lives on Him. Will we say, as our worship team is going to sing with us in a moment, that Christ is enough for us? And if we believe that, then let's start practicing that. Let's start living that so that every decision we make isn't about us, but it's about Christ. And it's about His plans and His glory for us in this world and in the world to come. Folks, that's the good life. Amen?